Hello, and welcome to the January 13th, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. After what had to be the worst kept secret ever in triathlon, it was finally officially announced that Nice in France will serve as the location for the Men's Ironman World Championship this fall in 2023, while the women continue to race in Kona. In 2024, the destinations will be reversed with the women in Nice and the men in Kona, and similar splitting of the races is set to continue until 2026 at least. Since the rumors first started circulating back in November, there hasn't really been much else to talk about in our sport than whether or not this is a good idea and whether or not this marks the beginning of the end of Ironman triathlon as we know it. I would love to say that this is the last time that I will be addressing this subject, but let's face it, that seems pretty unlikely. I haven't been shy about my support of this whole plan. I definitely understand the downsides, but with any change, there was going to be a downside, and there had to be a change. The status quo was really not okay with too many people. So here we are, a positively stellar location and likely very difficult and world championship worthy course on tap for the men next September. In October, the women will be back on the Big Island to have their own day in the sun, quite literally, and it will be after the men for the first time. The spotlight simply will not be any brighter than that for the women, and it will be brighter than it ever has been before. Mark my words, come mid-October of this year, we are unlikely to be hearing all of the complaining that we are hearing now. I am willing to bet that both events go off beautifully, and that the vast majority of participants and people watching around the world will be really excited by what they see. I, for one, am sad that this year I'm not racing Ironman. I would have loved to race in Nice, partly because I absolutely adore France, but also because the climate and that course would suit me far better than the humid hell that is Hawaii. Still, I accept that my optimism may be misplaced and that given that this is triathlon, a sport with a very high number of people who know what they want and are unafraid to let everyone else know exactly what that is, come November, I may be dismayed to be reporting on this very program that in fact, no one was happy and the sport really does face a reckoning. Brad Culp, one of the editors of Triathlete magazine, wrote about this quite recently. He himself is thrilled about Nice as a location, but worries that this is actually a problem. If he, Brad Culp, an editor at Triathlete, is likely to get a slot and race there, what does this say about the Ironman World Championship? Now, I don't doubt that this is an issue. The dilution of the World Championship to just another event is a very real risk. But this hasn't really happened with the 70.3 Worlds, and so I'm less concerned than others that this is going to happen with the Ironman Worlds either. But time will tell. For now, I'm just glad that we all know the final decision and can move on to the next phase of complaining, whatever that looks like. On the show today... I am taking on a question that has come to me several times over the past few months via email and through the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group. Every time you finish an activity and press stop on your Garmin wearable, your watch will process your data through an algorithm, and if you're unlucky, you will be greeted by a message telling you that your session was unproductive for your training status. Now, being trolled by your watch isn't the worst thing that can happen to you, but based on how often I see angry posts about this on social media, I do find myself wondering if it's kind of up there. So, after searching far and wide for someone, really anyone, who might be able to help me understand these measures and metrics that Garmin makes available to us by their wearables or the app on our phones, I decided to take the plunge and went down several rabbit holes on my way to finding out exactly what they all mean and whether or not you should pay any heed. It was an interesting journey, so charge up your body battery and come along to hear what I found, and that's coming up shortly. Later, I am joined by longtime Ironman and 70.3 professional triathlete Brent McMahon. Brent has also competed in two Olympic Games, making him the fourth Olympian to appear on this program, and has had wins in numerous triathlons all around the world, including Ironman Wisconsin this past September at the young age of 41. 
There, he qualified for the 2023 Worlds, which, at the time we conducted our interview, we thought would be in Kona, but we now know will be in Nice. And Brent joins me a little later on to discuss his long career and what lies ahead. Before all of that, I want to take a moment once again to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast, who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program, and in doing so, get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. This includes my newest supporter, Denise Haslick, who will be able to take advantage of the latest bonus episode that comes out next week. That episode will feature the very same Brent McMahon, giving us more insight to his remarkable career and his thoughts about performing as well as he has in the latter stages. For North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift in the form of a pretty cool Boko TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash podcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access to the bonus episodes and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, I thank you in advance just for considering. It's the new year, and if you're like me, then you are back to your normal training routine and putting in the valuable work needed to shed those holiday weight gains and be ready for races that are now mere months away. If you're also like me, then you're doing those workouts while sporting a wearable of some version that bears the Garmin logo. And that means that each time you finish one of those workouts, you are greeted by a sometime bit of encouraging news from said wearable in the form of a message telling you that your workout was productive, or in what can only be described as insufferable trolling of the worst kind, a notification that, thanks, but you know what, that was kind of a waste of effort because that workout was unproductive. Since my watch started giving me these little snarky bits of unwanted feedback a few years ago, I have to admit that I have basically just not paid any attention to them. But I know that for many, they continue to serve as a source of annoyance and indeed kind of a mystery. How in the world can it be, these people wonder, rightly so, I should add, that I just put out a hard and sweaty 90 minutes only to be told by this know-it-all disc of plastic and silicon on my wrist that the whole thing was essentially a waste of time. Well, count the listeners of this podcast among the mystified. For several months now, I have received numerous requests for explanations about how their Garmin knows anything about their health and training, and what the various metrics displayed in the Garmin app mean, and try as I have, I've been unable to find anyone with any particular ability to help me decipher them either. A search of the medical literature also came up empty, unsurprisingly, as these metrics, the algorithms, and the data with which they are determined are all proprietary to the Garmin platform. Now, to be clear, Garmin isn't the only one out there delivering these kinds of metrics or making use of the training data collected during workouts to give users this kind of feedback. Sunto, Whoop, and others all do the same thing. The issue for me, and I would wager most other users, is that none of these device makers do a particularly good job of explaining how any of the metrics are determined, what they really mean, and what kind of accuracy they actually have to be making the kinds of assertions and guidances that they are. To be fair, you can spend some time in the Garmin app on your phone and dive into all of the metrics and get a reasonable amount of information about each of how each of them are determined in a kind of general overview. But if you want real specifics, and especially if you want any hard data on how accurate any of this is, I'm afraid you're just not going to be able to find it. With all that said, let's at least take a look at these metrics and see if we can at least get a better understanding of what each one is trying to tell us how we might be able to make them more accurate, and most importantly, whether or not we actually should care what the value is in the first place. Let's begin first with the metric that I think most would agree is the most contentious, and that is the training status. And it's contentious, I think, because of the fact that we so frequently get that message that what we've just done is unproductive. This is the metric that generates not only the unproductive dispiriting message after you complete a workout, but can also tell you things like your detraining. According to the Garmin app, if you dig through a couple of menus, you can find the following dialogue to explain what the training status is. Quote, 
As you track activities with your Garmin device, your training status will change based on your acute training load, heart rate variability, and VO2 max. Training status can fall into the following categories, end quote. Then below this paragraph are nine different categories that a workout could potentially generate, including the previously mentioned productive and unproductive. Along with those are things like recovery, detraining, peaking, and overreaching, among others. And at this point, I should probably point out that if training status does nothing but cause you irritation, you can actually pause it so that you won't get those messages and never have to feel that sinking sensation again if you are so inclined. To do that, just touch the training status on the screen, and this is on your phone. You could probably do it on your watch as well, but I found it on the phone. So go to your phone app, the Garmin app, Garmin Connect, open that, you'll see the dialogue for all of the different metrics, and right near the top is going to be training status. So touch that. That will then get you onto another screen on which you will see three little dots vertically stacked at the top of the screen. Touch those, and this is going to give you an option to pause training status. Voila! No more messages of unproductive training. I'm guessing that already this podcast has earned itself a few five-star ratings just with that little helpful tip. Okay, let's pretend you want to keep the training status on. We need to go back to that paragraph that I read from the Garmin app that talks about what training status is in order to parse out exactly what was said in there, because although it gives us a lot of info, it kind of sounded like a bunch of gobbledygook. The key sentence in there was this. Your training status will change based on your acute training load, heart rate variability, and VO2 max. Okay, so those are the variables that influence training status, but what does all that mean? How exactly do each of these parameters change your training status, and how much does each contribute? As always, the devil is in the details, and I have not been able to find any details. Well, let's talk about the different parameters, because there is some information about the different parameters, what they are, and how they're not so much derived, but what contributes to them. So let's talk about training load first. According to the Garmin app, training load is a measure of your effort over the past seven days. It takes into account both exercise duration and intensity. Each activity that you do receives a load score that is a measure of how long it will take your body to recover from an activity. And this in turn is based on excess post-exercise oxygen consumption or EPOC. The longer or more intense the exercise, the higher the EPOC and therefore the higher the training load score for that activity. Your seven-day load is the sum of all activities done over the previous seven days. All right, let's move on to the second one. The second variable in determining the training status is VO2 max. Now, I'm sure most endurance athletes have a reasonable understanding of VO2 max, but to put it succinctly, this metric is one of the better indicators of cardiovascular fitness. VO2 max represents the maximum volume of oxygen in milliliters that your body can consume per minute per kilogram of body weight, and is a measure of the efficiency of cellular metabolism during peak exercise. The higher your VO2 max, the more efficient your cells are at metabolizing oxygen, and the more fit you are. How exactly your Garmin calculates your VO2 max is, again, somewhat proprietary, but there are a few things we know about it. It's based on heart rate and pace for running, and for cycling, it requires heart rate, power, and speed in order to be most accurate. It's most accurate if your heart rate is obtained with a chest strap, and while it's probably not as precise as getting a formal VO2 max measurement done in a sports medicine metabolic laboratory, it's actually been shown to be a pretty reasonable approximation. The final variable in training status on top of VO2 and your training load is heart rate variability, or HRV. Now, I've talked about HRV a fair amount on this podcast. HRV is a mathematical construct, and depending on how it is calculated, offers some insight into the balance between your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems, specifically how they are impacting their tone on the heart. There is some science out there to suggest that when sympathetic tone on the heart dominates, heart rate variability decreases, and this suggests a lower overall state of health. However, as I have said, 
on this podcast a few times before, just because we can measure something, it doesn't necessarily mean that that makes a metric useful. HRV has been touted as a panacea for all kinds of different uses, including in healthcare and in athletics, but to date, there kind of is a paucity of data to support the hyperbole with which its supporters espouse its value. All of this is to say that heart rate variability likely means something, but exactly what that something is probably isn't completely well understood by the people who are talking about it. If you want to know more on the subject, I'd encourage you to have a listen to episode 19, where I go into a lot more detail. Okay, so training status on your Garmin is based on these three variabilities, training load, VO2 max, and HRV. Though how it changes with each of these variables is not clear because they're put through an algorithm that Garmin doesn't publicize. I think, however, that knowing what I know now and without going too far down any more rabbit holes, I'm going to venture that Garmin's training status is basically like the Training Peaks Performance Management Chart, or PMC. Certainly, they sound pretty similar to my ear. If you have training peaks, you're likely familiar with the PMC, even if you don't pay that much attention to it. It's this graph that shows your ongoing training and shows how individual workouts contribute to your hopefully improving fitness. Each workout contributes a training stress that is reflected as an overall acute training load. And over time, this manifests in an increasing chronic training load, or CTL. Your CTL is the measure of your fitness over time, while the ATL is the measure of the acute training stress over time. The inverse of ATL, or acute training load on the PMC, is your training stress balance and represents fatigue. As ATL goes up, your TSB goes down and vice versa. All right, I think what Garmin has done is take the training load and substituted that for ATL. Your seven-day training load is what Garmin uses for ATL. And then is using HRV as an approximation for training stress balance to show your level of fatigue. As HRV goes down, it suggests that your training stress balance is going down, meaning that you're showing increasing levels of fatigue. And then I'm not entirely sure how VO2 max is being incorporated into it all, but they're using it in their algorithm. And their overall result is to give you your training status, which in training peak speak is going to be your CTL. Now, I could completely understand how this kind of display is potentially one that users would appreciate more than the graphical representation that Training Peaks gives. The PMC is itself not completely intuitive and takes a certain amount of time to appreciate. But given the amount of negative feedback that I continue to see on social media related to the pithy, unproductive training message on people's Garmin wearables, maybe this strategy needs to be rethought, or at least the wording of the message. There is one other notification that Garmin gives you after a workout, and that is a recommended recovery time. And if you're like me, that amount of time usually bears no resemblance to any reality that I've ever lived in. More often than not, my watch will tell me that after a two-hour bike ride, I need to take something like 48 hours off, to which I will say, thanks Garmin, and then put it into run mode and head out on my brick run. So where does that number come from? Well, like everything else on your watch, it's a number that is run through a mathematical algorithm inputting various parameters, including your age, your HRV, your training status, how much sleep you got last night, and, well, actually, I'm not sure what else is in there, but shake it all up and out will come this number. Like everything else your Garmin does, this algorithm can only be as accurate as the inputs that it receives. So if you don't wear your Garmin to track sleep, as I don't, then the number generated is going to be less reliable. So like everything else your Garmin tells you, aside from the things it measures, like time elapsed and distance traveled, you have to take this generated number with a hefty dose of salt. So to sum up, the training status is pretty much a metric that's generated through an algorithm taking different kinds of inputs that are going to only be as reliable as how much you wear your watch. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. The other thing about it is that it's kind of a substitute for the PMC that you see on Training Peaks, but it's giving you kind of similar data. 
So your training status, although an individual workout may be considered to be unproductive, the reason why it's unproductive can actually be found. If you scroll through the unproductive message, it will tell you why. It will tell you, oh, your heart rate variability was too low, or your load status wasn't quite as high as it needed to be, or maybe your VO2 max has been falling. If you're interested, you can dig into that message to find out why Garmin thinks that. If, however, you find this to be not particularly useful, then you've got two choices. You could ignore it the way I do, or you could just pause the training status the way I described a little bit earlier. Okay, that's enough of that, because there's still a couple of other Garmin health metrics that we need to discuss. And from what I can tell, while these two are about as mystifying as the training status, they don't tend to engender nearly as much angst or anger among users. The first of these is the stress level. In case you've ever wondered if you were stressed out or not, have no fear. Your Garmin is ready and willing to provide this information. Per the app on the phone, your wearable uses heart rate variability to estimate when you are under stress and when you are at rest. Your stress level is recorded throughout the day and assigned a number from 0 to 100 and broken into quartiles that are categorized as rest from 0 to 25, 26 to 50 is low, 51 to 75 is medium, and 76 to 100 is high. Now, the first thing that we need to discuss here is what exactly does Garmin mean by stress? After all, stress can mean different things depending on who's asking. I know personally, when I first noticed the stress metric, my thought was that my device was somehow tapping into whether or not I was feeling psychologically stressed. And indeed, there is some research out there that shows that heart rate variability can in fact be helpful in making this determination. However, based on the way the app categorizes stress, with rest being the title of the lowest category, my guess is that Garmin is not actually referring to psychological stress at all, and is in fact using stress as another way of referring to recovery state. So it's not psychological stress, but actually physical stress. After all, heart rate variability was being used to determine your your training status. So I'm pretty sure that when Garmin refers to stress, they're referring to stress as a physical stress. And this is what they refer to when they call stress in your health app. When I said earlier that HRV was being used as a surrogate for the Training Peaks Training Stress Balance, or TSB, I think this is exactly that measure. The, the training stress. So is your training stress high because you are fatigued? That's what they're showing you. HRV is Your HRV is low, your training stress is high, and they're giving you a score of, say, 90. Okay? If your HRV is, is high, you have a high heart rate variability, then Garmin's algorithm is interpreting that to suggest that your training stress, physical stress, is low, and therefore, you're going to get a low number on your stress score. Now, as I mentioned earlier, it's far from certain that your HRV can tell you if you are physically stressed and in need of recovery the way a lot of people will have you believe. I just said that there is some evidence that HRV is actually associated with psychological stress level. But if that's the case and your HRV is low, then how can you know why it is low? Is it as low because you are overtrained and need a recovery period? Or is it low because you are psychologically stressed and need to meditate or take some other kind of mental break? Or is it low because of something else going on? That right there is the whole problem with HRV. It can be impacted by many different things and is exquisitely sensitive to very small perturbations in physiology. And those who would have you believe that it is the one metric that should be followed religiously in a very linear fashion are overstating its value and don't really understand quite how complex this measure truly is. Now, if you're interested in knowing your HRV reported as stress by your Garmin, then it really is important that you measure your heart rate as much as possible. So this means wearing your watch with its optical heart rate monitor all of the time, including when you're asleep. This is the only way that the metric can be determined with any kind of reliability. Obviously, you need to charge the watch from time to time, but aside from that, keeping it on as much as possible is the best, most certain way to ensure that your Garmin stress level is reported with some degree of accuracy. What that number, the 0 to 100, actually means, and what you should do about it is unfortunately, a lot less clear. 
I, for one, don't have any good answers on that. I continue to believe that HRV is of interest but should not be used to make decisions related to training or recovery. And Garmin isn't 100% clear on what you should do with the number either, although they do suggest the higher your stress number is, the more you should consider recovery. The last of the health metrics that your Garmin will present to you is body battery. Body battery is yet another score assigned by your wearable that gives you a number from 1 to 100 and ostensibly measures your body's energy reserves to help you manage your day. Having a high number at the start of the day is normal, they say, as is having a lower number towards the end of the day or after a strenuous workout. The body battery number is calculated using a couple of different data points captured by your watch, including heart rate variability again sleep quality, and activities such as walking and any training you happen to do. Now, of all the metrics provided by the Garmin app, this one, the body battery, to me, seems to be the least useful and most, shall we say, ridiculous. In all my research on these topics, the articles that I found on the body battery were the ones that employed the most hand-waving or contorting by authors to try and find ways to show its utility. In the end, almost all concluded that the body battery was an interesting idea, but that shouldn't let it dictate how you feel, and instead, how you felt should trump whatever the body battery suggested. One of the biggest drawbacks and one of the real weaknesses of the body battery is that it doesn't take into account any nutritional intake. So if you're doing intermittent fasting or if you're overeating and have abundant energy, then the body battery is not going to know that or show it. So it's completely independent of caloric intake and therefore, how could it really know your energy levels? So I think body battery is probably not uh, necessarily the best term or best uh, title for this thing. Now, another uh, problem and a big limitation of the body battery idea is that it doesn't really take into account different circadian rhythm performers out there or the notion of shift work. You'll recall when I discussed the subject of circadian rhythm that there are those who perform well in the morning and those who do better later in the day. Well, the body battery doesn't have that kind of flexibility in its algorithm. And as a shift worker, I can tell you that the body battery has no idea what to do with my schedule. It comes up with wild, vacillating numbers depending on what shift I'm working clinically in the emergency department. So in my experience anyways, this questionable metric was even less useful. And this seems as good a point as any to dive into the overall utility of any of the Garmin health metrics. The main problem with all of the metrics that I can see is that they are pretty much all intricately intertwined and interdependent on the data measured on heart rate and sleep. Now, as you've learned, HRV is a critical parameter used to determine your training status, your stress level, your body battery, and pretty much everything. But as I mentioned, unless you wear the watch as continuously as possible, the accuracy and reliability of that number is going to be very, very questionable. And that doesn't even include the fact that the wrist-based optical heart rate monitor is in itself already a measure subject to pretty significant error. So right away, All of the major measures provided by the Garmin app are potentially rife with significant reliability issues and error related to the measurements themselves. Then there is the sleep measure. I have heard and read about how Garmin devices are notoriously unreliable for measuring sleep quantity and quality, and after trialing it myself in preparation for this segment, I have to say that everything I heard and read before was pretty much spot on. The amount of sleep that my Garmin said I was getting, compared with how much I was actually getting, was often off by more than an hour to an hour and a half per night, and when you consider that this input is integral to several of the calculations and algorithms putting out some of the composite metrics that I have discussed, this is yet another reason to view them as suspect. Look, there is no doubt that wearables like my Garmin device have made training and racing infinitely more analytical, enjoyable, and indeed strategic in many ways than was possible before these devices were around. And much of the data that they record has the potential to add value outside of our training as well. We've seen examples of how Apple Watches and Garmin devices have alerted users to heart rate abnormalities and allowed those people to seek medical care. So there are very real and potentially impactful benefits to having these devices on much of the time. However, the training and health metrics that are being provided with the input from this data remains, in my mind, kind of questionable. 
Certainly, the training status seems to cause more angst than anything else for many. The stress and body battery numbers are not particularly useful nor accurate, and I'm not sure anyone really knows what to do with them, even if they were. My personal suggestion is to do one of thing, one of a couple of things. If these numbers, particularly the training status messages, bother you, then turn it off. Pause training status, and you won't receive those notifications any longer. If, on the other hand, you're like me and just kind of shrug your shoulders and carry on with your day unfussed by how your wearable just disrespected your effort, leave it on and consider these metrics a curiosity and something that you can look at from day to day or from week to week, something to be noted but not necessarily acted upon. Whichever you choose, remember that the primary reason you got a wearable was to augment your ability to train and race, not to dictate how you feel or how you should respond to any specific number it presents you after a training session. How you feel should be the more important metric, and that is one value that your watch can't give. So be honest with yourself and with your coach and use that as the primary measure for how a workout went, how well you were recovering, and how ready you are for the next session. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll send me an email with it so that I can consider it for a later episode. You can also drop it in the private Facebook group for this podcast. Email me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com or look up the Facebook group on that platform, answer a couple of easy questions, I'll grant you access, and you can join the conversation there. My guest on the podcast today is fellow Canadian triathlete and life sport coached athlete, Brent McMahon. If you've been around triathlon at all in the past 20 plus years, then that name should be familiar to you. Brent has been participating in the sport since he was 10 years old, and that's over 30 years of doing triathlons now. Brent is an Olympian, World Cup champion, Xterra champion, Ironman 70.3, and Ironman champion. You name the distance, and he's raced it, and has... and. All has been under the guidance of Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson of Life Sport Coaching. Growing up in North Vancouver, Brent enjoyed many sports, ranging from high school wrestling to club soccer. And it was only after high school that he turned his sole focus to triathlon and the goals of making the senior national team and ultimately the Olympic team. During three Olympic qualifying cycles, he achieved much en route to competing at both the Athens and Olympic and London Olympic Games. Those years of perseverance shaped his move onto the Ironman circuit after London that began with multiple wins at the Ironman 70.3 distance and led to a win at his debut Ironman in Arizona. And not only did he win that 2014 Ironman Arizona, but he broke the course record at that time, went sub eight hours and posted the fastest time ever by a rookie. His time of 7.55.48 was the 15th fastest Ironman of all time to that point. In the eight years since, Brent has continued to race professionally and continued to rack up the wins. Most recently, he won Ironman Wisconsin at the tender young age of 41. And he recently raced the 70.3 Worlds in St. George and is on track to compete in Kona in 2023. But despite such a busy schedule, I've been able to get him to slow down just long enough to join me here on the TriDoc Podcast, and I can't thank him enough. Brent, thanks so much for joining me here today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm curious, uh, with obviously so much talent and so many pursuits athletically, what initially got you into triathlon? None of those things, uh, wrestling or the other sports that you were doing, were swimming or track. So what was it that originally got you to pursue multi-sport? I guess it was just the initially the the challenge of putting those those sports together. Obviously, I'd done lots of sports as a kid and individually each one had their own challenge. But what, what's unique about triathlon is is just trying to put them all together and, and I enjoyed each one of them on their own and grew, grew up doing all three of them. So it was kind of a, a fun challenge to put them together. And I think ultimately it was also my coach, Lance Watson, who at that time was just helping me out and giving me guidance. He identified that possibly I could put them all together really well and create a career out of it. And ultimately, maybe go to the Olympics or, yeah, become a professional. So it was kind of, well, I'm, I'm good at it. So let's see where I go. I'm curious, did you sense that yourself that you had that potential? Or was it really Lance that kind of opened your eyes to that? I think initially, definitely, it was it was Lance, obviously, a coach that's got experience with high performance athletes and talent ID and stuff like that. They they can see it before a lot of time an athlete can because a, a, a good coach can identify 
those measurables that indicate improvement and possible cap out as well. So I think for Lance, he he just saw my ability to to work hard and see regular steady improvement. And ultimately, triathlon, it's made up of a lot of hard work. Obviously, if you're talented in one of those sports, it doesn't mean you're going to be a great triathlete. And we see that all the time. We see great swimmers come into the sport or great runners or great bikers and and they become solid triathletes, but they don't necessarily dominate. It's, it's the athletes that are really good at all three that inevitably become world champions and stuff like that. So I think it, it definitely was Lance's confidence in my ability. And I think mostly my ability to just take on challenges and work hard. Did you ever imagine even for a moment that this would be something that you would be doing professionally for as long as you have been? No, definitely not. Especially, especially with my parents being traditional family parents. My dad was a banker. My mom was a nurse. So sport as a, as a career was not high on the the list of things to do uh, career wise. So initially my parents were hesitant about making that move after high school I actually decided to, my parents actually moved back to Victoria. We were living in North Van at the time and Lance encouraged me to uh, see where my talent could go and, and that would require training all year round. And up until that point through high school, I basically, I, I just did triathlon in the summer. I did water polo and wrestling and football and mountain biking, all that through the year and then just focus on on the training for triathlon in the summer. So I think Lance was like, well, if, if you really want to see where this talent and this ability to work hard goes, you're going to have to do it for a whole year because that's, that's how you see improvement is sticking with something and, and honing those skills day in and day out, year over year. So Lance said, well, if you want to do that, we've got a good group here. And I was training with a group of older athletes at the time. I was 16, 17, 18 when I first started working with Lance and the group of athletes that he had. And so I decided, well, okay, I'll, I'll ask my parents if I can not go to university after high school, which that's what my brother did. He graduated and then went straight into engineering and quickly realized that he didn't like engineering. And so he dropped out of engineering and switched over to a Bible college and became a, a pastor. So when I said to my parents, well, I don't know what I want to do, and I'm not sure I want to go straight into university, can I stay and live in my friend's basement and try triathlon training all year round. And of course they were like, mm, I don't, I, I don't know about that. I don't know about not getting a degree, but they were like, okay, if, if that's what you want to do, then you're going to have to find a, a place to live. You're going to have to figure out how to pay to stay there. And if that's, that's your choice, then they supported it, but they're like, we would like you to go to university. And I said, yeah, I, I probably will. I, but I, I want to try this for a year. And so that's what I did. I got a job at a bike shop, got a job at a coffee shop, worked part-time and trained as full-time as I could for a year after high school. And I think that's when I started to see my big improvement in the skills needed for triathlon. Did you get a degree eventually? Did you do it part-time or... Yeah, so basically I did that year in Vancouver and then I decided, okay, I need I, I need to kind of go back to the support of being at home, trying to train and, and pay rent at my friend's place and work. I saw that wasn't allowing me to train as hard as I wanted to. So I actually then went back home, moved back in with my parents, decided, okay, I can I can train better at home if I don't have to work as much. But in order to do so, my parents were like, well, you need to go back to at least some part-time school. So I moved back, I moved to Victoria and uh, I went to Camosun College and did part-time university level courses. Again, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I did sociology, biology, I did calculus again, which did not go well. <laughs> and so for me, I, I know I basically, I would go, I would go to school part-time in September semester and then in January semester, I would take it off because that's when we would do training camps and start to prepare for the, the World Cup season and stuff like that. And so I had to find that balance of, okay, can I, how much school can I do? We need to travel because with that one year of 
focused training, I found myself on the junior national team, then the senior national team. And then it was like, okay, well, I'm training with Simon Whitfield, a guy that got the first gold medal in triathlon. How do I, how do I keep doing this? And so, so basically after I moved to Victoria, Lance actually inevitably end up moving to Victoria and running the national training center. So I moved first, but then essentially the training center followed and I was then in the best place in Canada to be a professional Olympic triathlete because then all the athletes started coming to Victoria. So Simon was in Victoria and all the development athletes, all the junior athletes. So all of a sudden we had 30 of Canada's best athletes all in Victoria and I had the ability to live at home and and train at the center and that's ultimately for me what allowed me to first make it work that's the thing you when you're on the olympic cycle you're you're on the road six seven eight months a year you come home briefly and then you're away and so to have my parents there and be able to just kind of hang out at home for a month and then take off and not be paying rent and not having to have a job to afford the rent and stuff like that. It, it allowed me to just focus on training and becoming the best triathlete I could. Now, the relationship you've had with Lance is really, I dare say, fairly unique. I, I'm not aware of too many athletes that stay with the same coach for as long as you have. And clearly, I, I mean, I get it. I know Lance quite well, <laughs> not as well as you do, but I can I can envision how and why you've been together with Lance. But what do you attribute the length of that relationship and the success that you've had with him to? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely unique and I think it's unique in in the world of sport. I don't I don't really don't think I've heard of many coach athlete relationships over the 10 15 year career length and obviously that's unique also because I've I've just stayed in the sport of triathlon at a professional level for 25 years. There's a lot of professional athletes that don't have, there's not a lot of sports where you, you actually have a career for 25 years. You just can't, can't do that. So it's, it's, it's neat, but it, it's also just been part of how our relationship has worked. I like consistency. I like improving and I like learning and ultimately so does Lance. And no matter what, what I wanted to do, whether it was Xterra, Super Sprint, Olympic, Ironman, he was always willing to learn, always willing to improve his programming, his knowledge of me at the same time as I wanted to do different training and improve in different ways and continue to move forward as an athlete. And sometimes moving forward doesn't necessarily mean getting faster. It's, it's just getting better. It's a sidestep where, okay, I'm changing distances. How do I become better at this distance? Not necessarily faster, but just more efficient. And so a coach that's willing to accept they don't know everything and that their one way of thinking isn't the only way of doing it means you don't need to switch coaches because that coach can go, okay, well, I'm going to talk to a different coach that has maybe worked with an athlete in this sport of triathlon or even this sport, whether it be swimming, biking, or running. Lance has worked with many individual sport coaches. And I think that's why he can put them together so well is because he, he understands what it takes to become a great cyclist, a great runner, and a great swimmer. And it's when you build that relationship and once you kind of get to three, four, five, six, seven, eight years of building relationship, it's kind of like, well, what am I going to gain by going to some other coach? If, if my coach that I'm working with now is, is willing to change and, and give me something specific that stimulates me and continues to stimulate performance, then yeah, I, I could go to another coach and they're going to write a different program and it's going to stimulate me and it's going to challenge me. And yeah, I'll probably see some improvements. But if my current coach is going to change it up and mix it up, well, then I have a long relationship. He has a long understanding of me, of my weaknesses, because ultimately training comes down to your weaknesses. It's not your strengths. And, the, and weakness is not just in sport performance, but in body mechanics, in mental 
facets like, okay, we, we can't train for this long continuously or else mentally you get stale and then you get unmotivated and then it's hard to do training. Or if we do this type of training for this long, you're, you get bursitis or you get tendonitis. And so when you switch to a coach, you, a new coach, you gotta, you gotta do that learning all over again. So there is a lot of time, the typical cycle of coach athlete relationships are kind of three to five years. And so you see that, but then kind of once you get to five, 10 years, it's like, well, what, what's the point for me? It was just like, I'm, I'm still improving. Lance still challenges me. And I like Lance. We became friends, almost family at that point. We traveled all over the world and slept on floors and done it all together. And, and so it was really a, it's just a relationship that I just want to maintain. And it just kind of became easier and easier. Yeah, I imagine there's that inflection point. I think as listening to you describe it, I, I, you, you probably hit that three to five years where either things become kind of almost stale, as you mentioned, or stagnant, or you're seeing that you're just continuing to improve and you don't need to make that change. And I think if you get through that sort of five-year point, then the risk benefit of making the change probably switches where there's more risk than benefit. Because as you said, the coach knows you so well. And as, as long as that coach is continuing to look for ways to help you improve and looking for ways to help them improve to be able to better help you the way Lance obviously has, then yeah, I can, I, it totally makes sense. I can completely understand why that has worked for you as long as it has. I think that's a, an excellent way of putting it. When you look back over that long career, are there any particular highlights that stick out? I mean, I was looking over your results. It's incredible. I mean, the consistency is amazing. But I wonder, is there anything that you kind of look back and that jumps out at you as like, ah, I really remember this was something that meant a lot to me? Yeah, like like you said, there's, there's a lot of things and, and I've done a lot of things and achieved a lot of things. And I think one thing I always talk about is is not necessarily it's easy to say, well, this race, which I dominated and won and was a highlight. Obviously the Brazil Ironman where I almost broke the world record was a highlight. That's, that's one of those days that as an athlete you dream of that everything just works and you can push as hard as you want. And you just, you just enjoy the whole day. Obviously that's a highlight, but for me also, it's the highlights in my career when I, when either I made that transition from whether it was a junior athlete to getting onto the senior national team. So that's just meeting a, a big goal. It's not necessarily a single outcome. It's just a, it's a pathway that I chose and set as a goal. And did I achieve that pathway? And that's kind of like, for, for me, I didn't go to university and get a degree and then become a lawyer, move up. So, so my pathway was learn how to put three sports together and then learn how to do them well then as a kid and then do it as an adult and then make the national team. And so for each one of those steps that I made, it involves a lot of training, but it also a lot involves a lot of things to overcome. And as I said earlier about finding a way just to, to make the life work. So when I, when I made that national team, it meant that I got some funding and it meant I could get to more races. And though those kind of highlights are, those are kind of like the life journey highlights. And I think those are the ones that will stay with me my entire life because those are also what form your personality and who you are. And those often come with a lot of difficulties and challenges. And for me, the, the, the time between the Athens Olympics and the London Olympics were probably one of the most difficult times in my life and career because I dealt was dealing with injury, but I was also dealing with the emotional turmoil of not being qualifying for a spot for the Olympic team in Beijing, but then not being selected to go. And at that time, you are then four years away from the next Olympics. And that's the beauty of Ironman and long distance racing is there's a world championships every year. But the Olympics is what ultimately you're working towards. And so when you don't get selected to a team, then you're like, okay, it's another four years till this opportunity will come again. And do I have four years that I want to commit to it? 
And at that time, after not being selected in 2008, I had to decide, okay, do I want to dedicate another four years of my life? And that's not just me. That's my parents. That's my partner, Carolyn. That's coach Lance giving up a lot of things in order to to keep going. And ultimately, I did decide that, yeah, London, I wasn't done with my Olympic career. I wanted to go to another Olympics. And so I decided to do that. And all those people decided to support me. And so when I when I achieved that standard and, and meeting the qualifying criteria and being selected to the London Olympics, that was that was a huge career life moment for me. And it was a huge journey because it, even just to qualify, I actually was injured for almost a year and a half leading up and into the qualifying period. So I actually only had like 12 months where everybody else kind of had two years to qualify for the Olympics. And so I was on a really short timeline to try and meet the criteria, get all the points and all the ranking and all that. And that was kind of one of the crazy moments and crazy indicators of what it means to work with a coach for a long time that they know you. To start that qualifying for the London Olympics, I was released from the national team. So I was no longer funded. I was no longer on the national team because I'd been injured for a year and a half. And so for me to even start racing and represent Canada again, regardless of all that I had done, I had to go and do a 10K road race time trial. And I had to run a standard in order to be allowed to go to an ITU race to start my qualifying for the London Olympics. And I was still kind of coming off injury and I hadn't been able to do a ton of hard training. But the reality was I had to start racing because I had to start getting points because I only had 12 months left. And so we were just like, okay, well, the, the earliest you, we can get into a race is the, the Vancouver Sun Run. And you got to go and run. And I can't remember exactly what the time was, but it was something like 32.30. And I, Lance and I, a, a paltry thirty-two thirty. Yeah, <laughs> just, just <laughs> it's, it's just fast enough that you know you're going to be in the game. But so, so we did the training. We we tried to prepare, and basically, I was not sure I was going to be able to do it. But Lance basically said to me, "You've you've done the training. I can see that you're you're fit enough to do this." you're going to get fitter, you're going to get faster, and we'll get back to where you need to be. But you're fast enough to do this. And on this course, you, you're going to need to run X, Y, and Z. And he gave me the opening 2K split, the 5K split, and the 8K split. And he's like, if, if you hit these, then you're, you'll be on pace, and, and you'll be able to run the 32-30. And the sun run course, it's a, it's like a downhill start. So it's a little bit overpaced to start. And then you, you kind of wind around and Lance is obviously he's coached a whole bunch of runners. And so he knows the course really well, but he also knows me really well. And so he listed these times and basically I went out and I ran and I wasn't running by my watch. I was just going out trying to run as even paced and basically trying to hit 32 25 not so i didn't blow up so i didn't go out too hard because basically i just had to run under 32 30 and then i can continue on my journey and so i went through and i took those laps at those times and i ran 32 23 or 32 25 and made made the standard and then we went back and we looked at the splits and lance dictated that within three seconds on each one of those splits what my time was after reviewing it and so that it was just like he knew me so well and he knew my ability to pace and he knew that if i just did what we were doing in training I could do it. And he was within three seconds on each one of the 2K, 5K, and 8K splits. And so when, when, you, when you come away with, from something like that, and then I had to go into Olympic qualifying and, and I had to create a plan for how do I qualify for the Olympics, that, when I just trusted him. I just said, okay, what am I going to do, Lance? What, what, is, what is the training that I have to do to get to this standard? And 
And so he laid it out and we put a plan together and everything went to plan. Everything just, I just started ticking off the races. I had to do these ITU points races three weekends in a row and three different, I went down to Mexico, I went to Japan and I went to China three weekends in a row and had to get at least top three in each one of those races in order to get enough points to then carry on. And again, it was like, you just got to do this. If you just run this fast, you will do it. And sure enough, I was top three in all those races. I got the points needed to get into the, the World Triathlon Series events, which then got me to the Olympics. And one of those, that, that's the perfect example. And that's the perfect thing where, you know, if I'd been with any other coach, I probably wouldn't have been able to do that. It probably wouldn't have happened because I wouldn't have been able to trust them. They wouldn't have known me well enough to, to put the training to get just the bare minimum to stay healthy enough to get it done, but then to be able to carry on. And so kind of after that, it was like, well, he, he almost knows me better than I do. And uh, so when, when I get a program and I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this, then it's always just like, well, he knows what he's doing and he knows me. So I'll be able to do it. So I'm curious, you, you've been in the sport now for as long as you've had, you've seen a lot of people come and go. When you look at what's going on in the pro ranks with respect to the pace that's being brought to some of these events like Kona and St. George, are you surprised or are you just sort of looking at it and going, well, it's just the evolution of the sport and what we're seeing now with some of these kids that are coming up? Yeah, it's I, I ultimately it's the evolution of the sport. We it's funny, people think think that we have a long history, but when you really look at it and you look at other sports, we, we do not have a long history in in triathlon we, we just don't 2000 was the first olympics we were in so when you, you when you look at tennis and golf and all, all those other sports that have been around for way longer than us and and the standard that they're at and the the level and if you want to talk about the financial aspect and sponsorships and all of that it's like we're still a very young sport and our, our sport also is is a it's a mix of three sports and figuring out how best to mix those three uh, that there's not a ton of sports out there that do that. It's so it, it's going to take time and learning and people pushing limits. And, and so that's what we're seeing is we're seeing technology and we're seeing athlete ability slowly meld and, and continue to push and further. And the more time you're around, the more different, types of athletes you get in the sport as well. And so you're, you're starting to see Olympic level swimmers come into the sport. Well, that's going to lift. You're starting to see pro cyclists come in more regularly. You're starting to see sub four minute milers do, you know, so it's like all of a sudden your sports around long enough that now you're getting these exceptional athletes come in and, and challenge and, and push the sport forward. And, so it's just inevitable and yes it's it's amazing what they're they're doing but it's it's not surprising and i think certain races are also conducive to going fast and certain dynamics of races are conducive to going fast and obviously kona there's top 10 under eight hours that's crazy but you're seeing multiple ironmans a year where there's the podiums under eight hours so is it surprising? No, I, I don't think so. You see, you see the conditions as well in Kona the last few years. And I've, I've had this conversation with a bunch of people because again, it's, it's the talk right now of, oh, it's so crazy fast in Kona. And the conditions have also been crazy fast in Kona for quite a while now. I did my first Kona was 20, uh, I guess it was 2015. And, and we had, we had some pretty good wind there and all the years I went back after it just is calmer and calmer and calmer. And in 2015, the wind wasn't even that bad. I've got friends that have done it, Chris Lieto and that did it the five and 10 years before that. And they're like, people were getting blown off their bikes. So the, not, not to take anything away from what those guys did this past year, but I would love to see Kona with some wind back in it. And, and I think you're going to see a completely different type of racing and you're going to see times obviously be slower, but I, you're, 
the dynamic of the race will change as well. Well, Brent, uh, some great insights. Obviously, you've had a lengthy career in the sport, and uh, you would be the person who would have some of those. Brent McMahon, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate the conversation, and I wish you the best of luck going forward. Awesome. Thanks for having me. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private Tridoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.